Good morning. You'll have to excuse me. I'm getting over a cold, so I have a strange voice this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 11 and 12 this morning. And before I get going, how many of you guys have followed what's been going on at Asbury University in Kentucky with the revival that's break, broken out this last week? And um, what a sweet thing. Literally started in a college chapel service as a bunch of people were just like praying and worshiping the Lord that's turned into like a 24-hour revival that's happened every day since, that people from states all around have been flooding to Kentucky to check this out and see what God's doing. And there's something just so sweet for me thinking about God's spirit being on the move like that in our day and time. And we often limit God to this hour and a half section of time, this moment that we have on Sunday mornings, and we check our box and we leave to go back into our days. But the reality is, is like when revival breaks out like this, it's something that is never ending, where the praises and the worship of people and honoring God becomes something that happens 24-7. And um, somebody texted me this week and said, when is this happening in Coeur d'Alene? And I thought, like, come Lord Jesus. It's going to happen when a whole slew of followers of Jesus decide to put him first over their lives and their inconveniences. And as we dive into this chap these two chapters this morning, it's seemingly there's not much in these uh, verses, right? It's Nehemiah 11 and 12. We had talked from the beginning about just blasting through these two chapters and getting to 13 and wrapping the book up. But the more time that I spent in these two chapters, there's some nuggets in there that really, I think, prodded me a little bit this morning to just kind of poke the bear in a couple issues in our life today. But that we would see so clearly this morning this opportunity that we have to praise the living God, to devote and dedicate our lives wholly to him. And so I want to pray for us, and then we're going to dive in. We're going to read through um, a couple sections of these passages. I'm not going to read the whole thing because I cannot pronounce all the names. Um, but we're going to blast through some of it, and then we're going to dive in. And my heart, my prayer this morning for us has just been that the Lord would really speak to us through a handful of things in this text um, that I think if we allow him to speak to us, we'll poke some of the things, areas of our life that we have yet to surrender to him and that we've made it very much about us with the hope that our lives would be driven to 100% devotion and praise and honor of Jesus in all aspects, at all times of our life. So let me pray for us. Jesus, I just thank you so much for this time this morning. God, I thank you for the work that you're doing right now as we stand here in Coeur d'Alene all the way over in Kentucky in this move that seems to be happening by your spirit. I thank you for the lives that are being touched by that. I thank you for repentance that's being had and salvation that's being had and forgiveness and people coming to the altar to devote their lives to you, God, to acknowledge their error and recourse their lives to be devoted to you, Jesus. I thank you for the songs of worship and praise that are being sung 24-7 right now in Kentucky as we stand here. God, I thank you for the work that your spirit is doing, and we do pray, God, that that work would come to Coeur d'Alene, that it would come to the Northwest and to the West Coast, that it would consume our country, that it would consume our world. God, that we would live to see a day and time where people in droves 
would just surrender their lives to you, and I think it starts in the church. And so this morning, God, as we read through these passages that seemingly there's maybe not a lot to glean from, I pray that you'd help us to extract the nuggets, apply them to our lives, to learn more about you, Jesus, and that what would result from this would be lives of praise and honor, lives of devotion to you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Would you guys stand with me while we read this? I'm going to read through Nehemiah 11, 1 through 4, and then we're going to jump down and read 12, 27 through 47, and bear with me as I'm going to try my best to pronounce some of these names. Nehemiah 11, verse 1. I'm going to encourage you to not tune out right now, but to focus your attention and really try to grasp what's taking place. Now, the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. And the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem. But in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And in Jerusalem lived certain of the sons of Judah and of the sons of Benjamin. Jump down to Nehemiah 12, 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places. Listen to this to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, with singing, with cymbals, with harps, and with lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem, and the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. And then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hoshiah and half of the leaders of Judah and Ezariah and Ezra and Mushalam. And Judah and Benjamin, Shemaiah and Jeremiah, and certain of the priests' sons with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, the son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, the son of Zakur, the son of Asaph, and his relatives Shemaiah, Azarel, Malai, Gilai, Mai, Nathaniel, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them at the fountain gate. They went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David. At the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east, the other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north. And I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim and and by the gate of Yeshanah and by the fish gate and the tower of Henanel and the Tower of Hundred to the Sheep Gate, and they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me, and the priests, Eliakim, Messiah, Miniman, Micaiah, Elonai, Zechariah and Hanani with trumpets, and Messiah, Shammai, Eleazar, Uzi, Jehonan, Melchizedek, Elam, and Ezer. 
And the singers sang with Jezariah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God in all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers and they set apart that which was for the Levites and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. You guys can be seated. The last few chapters uh, of the book of Nehemiah seem like this big parentheses of sorts as we work through 8, 9, and 10 um, and, and as you had all this forward movement with the building of the wall leading up to uh, chapter 8, only to find this like brief caveat again in the last few chapters. And then chapters 11 and 12 sort of wrap up this parentheses. And then there's chapter 13, which we'll get to in two weeks. And in Nehemiah 8, we watched Nehemiah's generation read the Bible for six hours, and then they read it and prayed for six hours in Nehemiah chapter 9, and then they made a covenant with God based on what they read in Nehemiah 10. But then in this parenthesis, God's spirit was working. Like God's spirit was moving in the lives of people through the truth of God's word. Like something significant and impactful was happening. But before this three-chapter break, Nehemiah and the people had completely repaired the wall that was surrounding Jerusalem. And Nehemiah said in Nehemiah 7, 4, the city was wide and it was large, but the people within it were few and no houses has been re, had re, been rebuilt. So the wall's built, everything's sort of back intact, but there's no people to occupy the city. So even though they had rebuilt Jerusalem's walls and the gates, the city within those walls was still a mess. Hardly anybody lived there. No homes had been rebuilt. Jerusalem was sort of a shell of what it once was. And so the people joyfully dedicate themselves to God's mission in Jerusalem. They praise him for his help in rebuilding Jerusalem. And they prepared themselves to serve God for the generations to come in Jerusalem. If they had not dedicated themselves in this way, then everything they had done so far would have been pointless. But today, I want you to look at three different things they joyfully dedicated themselves to that I want to challenge us in this morning. The first one is this, um, as you would see in chapter 11, verses 1 through 36, is they dedicate themselves to the mission. In Nehemiah 11, you have this long list of the people who move into Jerusalem and into these nearby villages. Nehemiah actually says that there's 1,192 of them that were priests. 284 of them that were Levites and many others that were temple servants. And so they moved there to restart temple worship in verses three through nine. 
But there were more than temple workers that were coming to Jerusalem. Nehemiah says that there were 3,044 men. 468 of them were from the tribe of Judah. 968 of them were from Benjamin. And many others moved to the 17 towns immediately surrounding Jerusalem, meaning they became commuter, commuters who would travel into Jerusalem when it was their turn to serve in the temple. And even though... I didn't take the time to read the whole list out loud this morning. I want you to understand that it's not because they're not important. In fact, for ancient Israelites, reading these lists would be like visiting a war memorial for you and I. Each person on this list in their eyes was a hero. Like throughout the passage, these new like, inhabitants of Jerusalem were referred to as valiant and great men of honor in verses six and verses 14, in verse 14. In fact, God thought highly of these people because they did what was needed. Somebody had to live in Jerusalem and God appreciated these men for their sacrifice, that they actually decided to do the hard thing and come back into the city. But I told you that these people had joyfully dedicated themselves to God's mission. Well, how did they do that? How did they joyfully dedicate themselves to his mission? God wanted to be known in Jerusalem's temple. That's why they thought of Jerusalem as the holy city, as it's referred to. And it was the place that God's temple existed, and it was supposed to be this house of prayer for all the nations. And as long as the city was desolate, there would really be no revival of the people. If the city's empty and there's no people, there's no revival. There's no spiritual life on earth if that place is empty. So there's no people, there's no worship. There's no worship, there's no witness that they have to the world. If there's no witness, there's no salvation. If there's no salvation, there's no eternal life. So go pull that thread a little bit. And so for them, inhabiting Jerusalem was truly a life or death decision. And God's mission was actually to bring life, right? So the people get to it. They joyfully dedicate themselves to God's mission to reach people. And the reality is that we have to do the same. Right? The church has to stay focused on the simple mission that Jesus left with you and I. We don't have a temple, we don't have a holy city that we have to occupy like they did in this time but we are to be the temple of God to the cities and the places that we live in. We bring the temple, we bring the aroma of Christ, the flavor of Jesus to these cities. In Nehemiah's day, the nations were meant to, be, to, to make this massive pilgrimage to Jerusalem to experience the Lord, and they do this a few times a year during these festivals. But in our day, we aren't meant, we're meant to actually make the pilgrimage out to the nations. We don't have to go to Jerusalem to experience it. You are the temple of the living God. We go to the nations because we bring the temple with us. The Spirit goes with us as we go. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, and most of you know this passage, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so we have to embrace Jesus' mission to make disciples. That's the primary thing that he's asked us to do, right? Love him and love others. We're, we're to take the hope of the gospel to the world, like 
baptizing and teaching all of those that would believe in Jesus Christ. We're to be disciples who then make more disciples, which is this slow process that engages people in a very personal way. In another passage, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, is what Jesus says. You're the light of the world. A city that is placed on the top of a hill cannot be hidden. And what Jesus means is that true Christianity is not meant to be hidden, right? But to be on display in the darkness, to bring light to the world. And First Peter, he tells us that it's wrong for us to respond to the, the, the marginalization of Christianity by running away from things, by becoming angry, or by conforming to the culture. But instead, Peter says this, we're to receive God's grace and to stand firm. He even refers to us as aliens. See, Peter refers to us as sojourners in our own cities and the cultures that you and I are in. And we aren't to respond by running, but instead we have to prioritize his mission. We run too. And honestly, God's mission is going to be uncomfortable for our lives. It was most definitely uncomfortable to Nehemiah's generation. Like only Jerusalem's walls had been repaired, but everything else is still busted up. It had been this ghost town for 70 plus years, and Jerusalem was not an ideal place to live or to raise a family. It was actually fairly dangerous. But these people tithed not just their money, but they tithed themselves. A tenth of them go back in. One out of every 10 move back into the city, and others, it says, willingly volunteered to live in Jerusalem. If we're gonna be a people that dedicate ourselves to God's mission, we have to be ready for hardship, right? We say this, but do we actually believe that? Do we know that? I've said this before, but I don't think now is the time for us to look for the comforts in Christendom. Christendom, if you're unfamiliar with this terminology, with this term, it refers to a society that's generally governed by Christian morals and Christian laws. So even if the people within the society haven't submitted to the gospel, Christendom is more comfortable in many ways for true Christians. It's an easy place to live because it's dictated by God's morals and God's laws. But life outside of a Christendom culture is not gonna be comfortable for Christians, for followers of Jesus, which is exactly where we find ourselves today. And I'm gonna poke the bear a little bit this morning. But in a culture that has some historical roots in Christianity, but has drifted very far off from those roots, we as Christians get freaked out about this because we want sort of the joys of living in Christian culture where Christians are the majority, to be around like-minded and like-hearted people. But the reality is, listen to this, if we are gonna dedicate ourselves to God's mission, I think we have to be ready to be the minority and not the majority. Nehemiah's generation sends less than 5,000 people to live in, in, back in Jerusalem. Less than 5,000. That's a whole lot less than the days of Solomon. But I think that they rejoiced even in the fact that there were fewer and that God was doing this significant, deep work in the few that actually came to live there. Think about Europe in these days. If you go do a study of the amount of mega churches that exist in Europe nowadays, it's very few in comparison to the United States. 
Like if you have 100 Christians gathering in one place in Europe right now, you have a mega church in Europe because it's unheard of. There are very few followers of Jesus in Europe. The United States has been too used to a culture that has a ton of professed Christians with few that had some sort of significant or deeper work going on inside of them. Now, now we're sort of watching this in real time in our culture where there's this polarization of that in our society and around the globe, right? As there's this sort of separation that's occurring. I don't know if you feel that or you see that, but there's a separation that is occurring. And, and, and we're seeing that just because there are millions of professed Christians does not mean that those professed Christians have substantial depth or a life of devotion to Jesus. Just because they say it doesn't mean they are it. Many were cultural Christians. They were Christians like via family or they were Christians via proximity. I grew up in it, I'm around it, I attend things, I check the box, that makes me a Christian, but they're not devoted followers of Jesus. And so as we watch the separation occur, even in our nation right now, it seems like there are fewer Christians. All the news agencies are writing these articles about these massive groups of people leaving the church, turning their backs on faith, that Christians are becoming fewer and fewer. And I would argue that they're not becoming fewer and fewer, we're watching the polarization of those who are truly devoted to Jesus versus those that had no roots or grounding in the church or in Jesus to begin with. We're watching this happen in real time. But as we watch this happen, the exciting thing about it is there's a handful, there's a remnant that really love him, that are wholly devoted to him. And what Jesus can do with a remnant is remarkable. How he can fan that flame from, the, from here into the future, into eternity, through a remnant of people that are fully devoted to him. But you see this separation happening and as following Jesus, we realize following Jesus will cost us something. And the number of Christians globally is declining right now, professed Christians. And so if we're gonna dedicate ourselves to God's mission, we also probably have to be ready to face hostility on this earth. We, we, can't, we can't expect to be favored in society's eyes. Many of you might initially think that I, I, I mean that we should expect to be like the political minority and that that could be fixed by moving to an area that is more like your political views and you will be in the majority again, but I don't mean that. To me, true Christianity will be the minority voice in every state, in every nation that believers find themselves in. It'll be a returning to Jesus. It won't be a right or a left. We're actually a dissenting voice in a world in which the majority does not know or follow Jesus. There are a few of us. And I love the focus of the people in Nehemiah 11, that they were willing to center their lives around God's house to fulfill the, the mission that God had given them. And I pray for you and I that, that we could be a people that do likewise, that we fulfill our mission in God's kingdom. As Jesus said in Mark 4, and he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? We've gotta stay focused on our mission, church. What has he actually called us to? 
And in these times, there's so much that can cause us fear or worry or distract us from the real task at hand. For instance, we, we see Russia's invasion of Ukraine and we start freaking out. Like, does this mean that we're in the end? We see earthquakes and natural disasters. We see spy balloons and conspiracies and political partisanship. We see all of these divisions and things happening in this world and it's all causing people's heads to spin out. And many wonder, like, is this the end? Are we living in the end? Is there a conspiracy at play to sort of reset the world stage? But I wanna comfort us this morning because Jesus said not to be alarmed when there are wars and rumors of wars because though this must take place, he said, the end is not yet in Mark 13. Even if it was the end, what would change for you and I today if this was the end? Does Jesus' command to make disciples of all nations suddenly shift in times of hardship and change course? Or is that still the goal, the plan? If anything, these times make the world more ripe for the mission. Check this out, in Nehemiah, you know, Nehemiah mentions how the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to live in Jerusalem in, in verse two of chapter 11. These volunteers were held in high regard because they willingly entered into difficult work. And I think that's a bit countercultural for you and I today. The, the work that we often want to do is fun and exciting, and it's high paying, right? We want the work that leads us to the most comfortable future possible, the, the work that sets us up for the safest life and the safest future ahead. But this wasn't what the people were offering themselves to at all. They were volunteering themselves to live in the center of not only worship in, Juda in Judaism, but they were also volunteering to live in the place that would be the most attacked, where their families would face the most grave danger. They were literally placing themselves on the front lines willingly because they believed the mission to build the city of the people of God was that important that God had burned it so clearly on their hearts that no matter what, they were gonna follow through with it. And they realized that their families, generations prior, had totally abandoned that mission, totally turned their backs on the Lord. And that now they have to sort of restore what was lost as a result of complacency and self-satisfaction that came in the generations prior to them. So they were returning to their first love, even if it meant placing their lives and their families in grave danger. Like to them, the mission was worth it. The second thing that they're, they're, that they're dedicating themselves to is they're dedicating themselves to praise. In, in the second part of this chapter, the people joyfully dedicated themselves to praise God. Nehemiah's generation gathered everyone to Jerusalem to dedicate the wall that they had just repaired, that they had just rebuilt. And it was a time, as it says in verse 27, of intense gladness and thanksgiving to God in verse 27. That he had helped them fulfill their mission and now they were, gonna, they were going back to thank God for his help. Like this was a response to their thanksgiving to God. I'll go back in. I'll be the one to put my life on the line and to face grave danger because of what you've done for us. And so they joyfully dedicated their lives to praise God. 
And I think in order for us to understand how we too can dedicate ourselves to praise God, we should look at three types of praise that we see sort of breaking down in this passage. The first is this, what I would call like a historical praise. In verses one through 29, you you look at the nature, uh, the, the historical nature of their praise. This passage begins with this list that I didn't read out loud. The beginning of the list records some of the priests and the Levites who came back to rebuild the temple a few generations earlier. And then the end of the list records the priests and the Levites who were born after that first group all the way up to Nehemiah's day. And the reason that those priests were recorded in Nehemiah 12 is because Nehemiah wanted to connect what he was about to do to the generation that came back from captivity. They had this goal of rebuilding and reinstating Israel's temple. And Nehemiah felt that the work that he had done on the walls was an extension of their mission, right? Like, if you have no walls, you have no temple worship. And so Nehemiah records their names all the way up to his time. And then after this, Nehemiah records this gathering of God's people to praise God for his work. Like they felt they were continuing a larger and and historical work that God began generations earlier that they're actually stepping into this. And so to bring it home for you and I, we should praise God when we get to be even a small part of God's longer term plan on this earth. I sometimes think about this on Sundays as we were standing here praying with the worship team prior. I was thinking through this. That beings were on the West Coast, we're like one of the last time zones to sort of experience Sunday mornings. Worship, prayer, praise, studying God's word. Like think about this, churches all over the world, in Asia, Australia, the Middle East, Eastern Europe, Africa, Western Europe, South America, the rest of North America have already gathered together this morning to praise God. And I think it's so cool that we're one of the final waves of praise and worship on this earth each week when we gather together. Like what an amazing thing that we're stepping into each Sunday morning. So even though the majority of these churches around the globe are small, like less than 100 people, We're part of this larger worldwide network and we actually should rejoice in that, right? Like as the church gathers to praise God, it's the collective of praise globally that the Lord is receiving from his whole church. Not just a few hundred of us that are here at Anthem in CDA, but the millions globally that are giving praise and honor to the Lord collectively. The second um, part of their praise was musical praise. Think about the musical nature of their praise. The text mentions singing, choirs, cymbals, harps, lyres. Like over 20 instruments are mentioned in the Bible and many of them were used to worship God. And the psalmist said in Psalm 150, praise him with trumpet sound, praise him with lute and harp, praise him with tambourine and dance, praise him with strings and pipe, praise him with sounding cymbals, praise him with loud clashing cymbals, Let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Anybody ever heard of tambourine in worship before? My goodness. We had a lady that used to show up years ago every service, and it'd be like middle of worship, and all of a sudden you started hearing this, and it was super offbeat, and it would mess up the worship team every week because she's just going for it with this tambourine. 
And it was like the one bummer conversation, one of many, but one bummer conversation that I've had to have in 13 years time where I was like, I love your heart. Like, just so appreciate like your desire to worship God with your tambourine. But like, you can't pull that out on Sundays. Like the worship team can't stay on rhythm because like they just hear your tambourine, you know, like can you keep it quiet? Or So if you brought a tambourine with you this morning, I'd appreciate it if you keep it in your purse. Shake it all you want once you get outside these walls today, but not in here right now, um, unless you're trained, of course. But when we think about music, one of the things that I love about music is that music in some form or fashion is actually something that is evidence for a creator for us. Like, it doesn't make sense. How do all those sounds come together and people's voices and how he's made us? And when they sing in harmony, if you've ever heard just like a group of people come together in harmony and singing praise to the Lord, what an amazing sound that it makes. I've been reading through the book of Genesis with my son Jonah and having just these amazing conversations with him. And as we were reading through Genesis 1, there's a section that says when God created male and female that he blessed them and told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then he told them to subdue the earth and have dominion over the earth. And as I was thinking about like the enormity of the authority that God's given us, it made me think about the fact that God probably meant that we should discover math equations. (laughs) that we should discover musical notes and that we should discover how to sing and use these instruments that he's given us and these voices that he's given us, that God himself had put those out into the cosmos, right, for us to learn, to cultivate, to enjoy. There's a reason and a purpose for it all. And not only is music a way to enjoy creation, but it's this amazing vehicle for celebrating, for, for thanking, for praying to God. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel as though I don't have enough words. I know that's a shock to some of you. And sometimes I feel like my words just are not enough. And how cool is it that sometimes the lyrics need instruments to get the emotion of the song through? And how cool is it sometimes when I don't have words that I can sing? that I can worship and honor Jesus even without having to say anything. I love watching and hearing our church sing. Like it's one of the greatest joys for me is to sit and hear your voices. And I really feel like over the last couple years, like there's even been some growth in that where it's just like maybe people stepping out of their comfort zone and singing a little bit more. But as I sit back and worship on a Sunday morning and I listen to your voices, there's something that blesses my heart because I know that it's a blessing to the Lord. That we're not here to check the boxes and sing Christian karaoke, but we're here to offer up praise and glory to the one who created us. The one who gave us the voices to sing the one who helped develop the songs that we sing, the one who created our abilities to enjoy the instruments by the bands that come up here and play. Like there's so many facets of it working together and in all it's bringing this amazing song to the Lord. And sometimes I sit on the edge of tears on a regular basis and I I hear the church sing and I hear people playing instruments in praise and worship to the Lord. And to me it's just a real gift to listen to that. And I I pray that we continue to be a church that dedicates our praise to him through music. 
because I want to hear us sing at the top of our lungs, not because I need an accolade, because I want to know that we just can't contain ourselves. And you live in a world that's constantly encouraging you to contain yourself. Keep to yourself. Don't do anything that's gonna make you look like a fool. And I'm reading this passage and thinking of what's taking place on top of the city walls and the fact that the joy of Jerusalem was going out to all the surrounding cities and I'm like, what a bunch of fools. Offering up their praise and dedication, their worship to the Lord. What a privilege that God allows us. He's given us the, the tools to praise him. And the last thing is this, is there's sort of this like praise in their testimony that I think is really cool. Think about the, the sort of the testimonial nature of their praise. Nehemiah organizes these two choirs, it says, one led by Ezra, the other by Nehemiah, and these choirs climb on top of the wall that they just built. Ezra's goes one direction, Nehemiah's goes the other, and they sang while they walked on the wall. And the reason that I, I call this sort of like a testimony is because of the fact that they could actually walk on the wall. Like, it actually testified to the strength of the wall, if you think about it. If you go back a few chapters, remember what their enemy Tobiah had teased them with and taunted them with, ridiculed them over in chapter four? He said, what are, what are they building? Like, if a fox goes up on it, he's gonna break their stone wall. Like, not even a fox can stand on that. But now Nehemiah has two choirs of people encircling the city on top of the walls, like praising God for what he's done. Like what an amazing feat. And the book of Nehemiah started with Nehemiah encircling the city on his own, right? He, he gets to Jerusalem and he goes out by night and he starts sort of trying to figure out, get a lay of the land, what's damaged and where are things at, and he's by himself. Now Nehemiah has this massive group of people that encircling the city in the daylight, praising God for his help in rebuilding the wall. I have no idea what it was they were singing. Maybe it was a psalm, maybe it was one of the psalms of ascent, maybe like Psalm 48, verses 12 through 14 says, walk about Zion, go around her, remember her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever, that he will guide us forever. Whatever it is that they sang, the joy and praise of that day was intense, according to verse 43. For God made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. I cannot imagine what in the world that sounded like, singing, instruments, joy, breaking loose in the city that had been desolate for 70 plus years. And the Israelites went crazy with joy over what God had done for them. And I think sort of the, the testimonial nature of their praise is important because when God does a work in our lives, when a goal is accomplished, when a desire of our heart is fulfilled, it's good to pause and praise him, isn't it? And give thanks to him for what it is that he's done. And there's always more to be done, but God is pleased when we stop even in the moment and thank him. And I honestly pray that someday each of you will dance on your walls. 
whatever that may be in your life, right? Whatever those walls are that you'll overcome in your marriage and that you will stand firm, that you'll dance on the walls and sing about what God has done to testify about how good he is, that that day will come for you. That, that your friend or your family member will come to know Jesus, that the addiction in your life will be eradicated. Maybe that your house will be paid off, that your kids will grow up to honor the Lord. But hear me in this, that every promotion and graduation, every baptism, every birthday, every Easter service is a chance to dance a little bit on the walls that God's given us, isn't it? That we get up there and we go, you know what? They told us we couldn't even build this thing. They said it was impossible. But God made it possible. Nehemiah must have thought that he would be the only one at some point dancing on the wall, but there's thousands. Generations of people that hasn't praised God for generations that are now breaking out in praise as a result of reading God's word and beginning to honor his law, and now they're standing upon the walls and they're praising him, and they're reinstituting temple worship once again. So they're dedicating this thing to the Lord because of what he's done. And the last thing is this. Is there's also a dedication of their future. And I wanna leave you with this this morning. They didn't stop there, right? There was the dedication of their praise. Um, There was the dedication to the mission that God had given them. But in one last portion of this passage, the people committed to actually keep it going, to not stop. So they appointed workers to oversee the storerooms and the contributions and the first fruits and the tithes for the priests and the Levites. And in ordaining these men and committing these resources, they were actually demonstrating this joyful dedication of a future to God, that the rest is his, the future is his. They wanted to go back to the days of David and Solomon and Asaph that had been established years, generations prior. They wanted the temple to flourish, and so what did they do? They planned for it. They began to put the right people in in place so that the praise could be done. They began to build a plan so that the future generations would be blessed by it. And I don't have a ton to say this morning on this point, but I want to encourage you to do what you can to prepare for a lifelong service of Jesus. Hebrews 12 says to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely that we're to run with endurance the race that has been set forth before us. Church, we're to joyfully dedicate our futures to God. We we commit to a church family. We commit our finances to him. We commit our bodies to him. We commit our friendships to him. We commit our decisions to him, our marriages to him. We commit them to God so that you can enjoy him for for the long run, so that you can commit to keeping it going, that it doesn't just stop here. And I find it so intriguing that, intriguing that the events of this chapter are a bit like heaven on earth, to be honest. 
If you fast forward to the book of Revelation, you'll sort of see a similar scene, right? This new Jerusalem that's inhabited by God's people. There's this holy temple, God's place. There's elders and leaders and choirs all joining together in worship to God. And there's this ongoing devotion to the living God. And many of the components of heaven, as described in Revelation, are found here in Nehemiah's day. Like they're experiencing a glimpse of it now. And with all the joy and the excitement that is in this passage, it's sad to think about what happens in chapter 13. That in seven to 12 years time, they say, these people had reverted back to their old ways and thrown in the towel and everything that they devoted all of this time to. As I've already said, 13 is not a happy chapter, right? All the commitments they made to live life on earth as it is in heaven sort of dissipate once Nehemiah leaves town. But in one sense, I really think this is how it should be. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up here. Because what we realize in this is that only Jesus pursued the mission with perfection, didn't he? You and I are gonna fall short. Only Jesus served the Father with perfection. Only Jesus devoted his future to the Father perfectly. And because he did, because Jesus lived perfectly before God in our place, we can one day experience his new Jerusalem complete with these unending choirs, unfailing people that we can walk into, live into that. One day, because of Jesus, we will be what we were meant to be and we will dance on the walls of his new Jerusalem, singing and celebrating him for all that he's done to rebuild us and to rebuild this world. That is our future hope. And the reality is that you can know him, right? He certainly wants to know each and every one of you. He came for you. God's son became like you, for you. Believe that he lived for you. Believe that he died for you. Believe that he rose for you. And if you do, you will actually be adopted in. You will be part of his forever kingdom. And as I wrap this up this morning, I want to encourage us in our praise, in our joy. Because I often feel like it's so easy for us to be consumed by this life and the crap that's going on in this world that we honestly come here bummed out on a Sunday morning. The reality is this. Anybody here have something to be thankful for to God this morning? Anybody have a wall that you've stood on at some point in celebration of what God's done and had been an, an integral part of helping to rebuild? Where's the doom and gloom in any of this? And what is it that the world will see far more than our issues and our problems? It's the way we devote our lives to the praise and worship to a God that even in the midst of our gnarliest, hairiest seasons of life continues to extract worship and praise from us. We have a lot to be joyful over. 
And sometimes I watch people get trapped in their little myopic world of their things that are going on in their lives and they can't get out of that. And sometimes you just wanna grab people and pull them up 30,000 feet per second and be like, do you believe that God's big enough to fix that situation? Do you believe that God's worthy of your honor and praise even when you find yourself in a hairy situation that you can't understand? Are you willing to stand on the walls and praise him even when everything in this world in your life tells you that you should stay put? Man, when we come here to worship Jesus, I was, I was never a singer. I'm not a good singer. And there was something about me coming to faith in Jesus and realizing like how much I love worship. Not just like the top 40 worship songs but how much I just love singing to the Lord. That there's something in that that refocuses our attention. It, it like puts the attention back on him and takes it off of our problem. And the reality is that many of you in this room have a lot to be bummed out about right now in life. There's a lot of junk going on. And if you spend too much time on the news, it's gonna convince you that there's a lot more crappy things to come. But that's not the world we live in. The world we live in is ruled by Jesus. And the mindset we get to be in is one that says, even though all hell breaks loose on this earth, I've got a reason to stand in praise. I've got a reason to be devoted to the Lord. I've got a reason to be joyful even when everything around me seems as though it's bleak. And so as we close in worship this morning, Man, this isn't a ploy for me to say like, I wanna sing you, sing your hearts out this morning, louder than you've ever been. But I would say this, if you got a reason to praise, then what's keeping you from doing it? 90% of you raised your hands this morning and said you have a reason to praise. And maybe your problem is that first and foremost, you need to dedicate your praise to him instead of wallowing in your self-pity and believing that life sucks and there's no changes being made. Maybe your heart will be changed as you step into this. So I wanna close in worship this morning and I want you to contemplate for a second what it is you have to be thankful for and who it is, this God that you're singing to and how it is that he created these instruments and these voices and the ability to harmonize together to make a noise to him and also back up for a second for a second and realize millions across the world have been doing with the, this with us this morning how amazing is that millions have been gathered harmonizing in one voice to bring praise and worship to Jesus he deserves it would you stand with me let me pray for you. There's some of you in this room just with your eyes shut for a second. Um, as you walked into this room this morning, there were literally barriers. There were voices that you heard telling you to keep your mouth shut, to sit in your pain and your hurt. quiet, to be frustrated, because the voices around you told you that things will not change, 
and the wall will never be rebuilt. But maybe as we're sitting here this morning, standing, maybe there's something that God's doing in your heart to remind you this morning that maybe things aren't as bad as you thought. And maybe God is worthy of your praise despite how you feel. And maybe by turning your attention to him this morning, it will actually do something to shift your heart, your ability to see him clearly and not be wallowed in your self-pity this morning. And if you want a little bit of that, I'm not some magician that'll make it happen, but I believe that if we acknowledge him and ask for it, that he'll give it to us. If you want the joy of the Lord this morning, raise your hand. If you want your life to be devoted to praising him, keep your hands up. If you believe that there's walls that were broken down, that he's been in the business of reestablishing or has already established, keep your hands up. What an amazing thing. Jesus, I thank you so much for each person whose hand is up as that to me is just an acknowledgement that you're working, that you're on the move, God, that there are things that you are doing in our lives that deserve our praise and our attention this morning. And so even as we close out in song, I'm praying, Jesus, that more than our mouths speaking these words, that our hearts would align with what it is our mouths are saying. This is an opportunity for us to respond to you, Jesus, because you're worthy. You're worthy, God. You're worthy of our praise, Jesus. You're worthy of us acknowledging that though things seem hard, we believe you're in it, and we believe you're for us and that you're with us. You're worthy of the fact that you bring joy to us, like everlasting, real joy, when all the things in life seem to be bringing us sorrow and pain. We want to be rooted in you and founded in you and anchored in you, Jesus. We want our faith to go deep, God, and we don't wanna be those people that seem to just sort of move with the winds and the tides of culture and circumstance, but a people that are constantly grounded, who have a firm foundation and a reason to stand and give praise to you this morning. So we offer that to you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for the work that you're doing in so many in this church. I thank you, God, that I get to sing with them this morning, that we get to bring our good and bad voices together, and that you don't see them as good or bad, but you see them as perfect, a perfect harmony to you this morning, Jesus, and what a gift that is. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we sing. We're gonna have our prayer team up here, and if there's those of you who have specific things that, that you're, you've been going to the Lord about and you want prayer, come grab one of us. I mean, honestly, this is where prayer should happen. This is the place where we can be authentic and real, bear our souls and ask for people to partner with us in prayer and seeing God actually work miracles in our time. And as we worship right now, I just am asking that you sort of push everything to the side that's frustrating. Everything in your life right now that is, dis is a distraction. Push aside the fact that the Eagles and the Chiefs get to play in the Super Bowl today, you know? Like, wish it was the Seahawks. But let's push everything else aside 
and just like turn our attention to him this morning and worship and praise him as we close out the service.